You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. We're going to go out west on this episode and visit with one of our our Ducks Unlimited staff members in the California Central Valley. And specifically, we're going to welcome in a good friend of mine, a longtime friend of mine, Matt Kaminsky, a regional biologist out of uh, Fresno, California. Matt, welcome into the show. Thank you, Mike. It's good to have you on this. You know, I, I, I introduced you as a longtime friend and colleague. I think you and I have known one another for close to 25 years as I was kind of thinking about this as we set this up. And, uh, and yeah, that's, that's a long time, Matt. You and I could probably tell some stories on one another, but we, I think we'd be wise not to do that. So we can just both at the outset agree on that. Do we have a deal? That's right. We can just uh, we can sum it up and just say, hell state. <laughs> that's right. In reference to Mississippi State, to be, to be clear there, yeah. Um, Matt, I think what we, what we wanted to have you on here today for is to to give us a little update on on a couple of things first we are using the podcast to introduce a lot of our listeners and supporters to some of our staff uh across the country and the work that we do and you're obviously in that category Uh, and then once we do that i want you to tell us a little bit about uh what you're seeing with respect to waterfowl abundance habitat conditions we've had some folks listening to the podcast and they reached out to us and said hey you know it'd be nice to get some updates from out west and so we don't have any aerial survey data uh to report on out west you and i talked about that and we discussed whether california or any of the other western states conducted those surveys right now and they don't so we'll have to wait for the midwinter survey for some of those numbers but i know you get out in the field a little bit so we wanted to pick your brain and share some of that information with the people but uh but let's let's start with you just giving us a bit of an overview on on what you do for ducks unlimited and where you're located just so people get some sense of you know what what are our biologists doing out there sure um well, like you've said, I'm a regional biologist. My primary focus is to deliver conservation work from an area just south of the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta. It's around Modesto, California, all the way down to Bakersfield. So it's really two big sub-basins, the San Joaquin Basin and the Tulare Basin. My main goal is to work with private and public landowners in those regions. Um, develop conservation projects and write grants to help uh, facilitate uh, delivery of those um, projects. Matt, I know I've I've spent a little time out in California. I worked out in the Los Banos area for, uh, I guess, just about six months back in 1996, I think the year was. And so I'm roughly familiar with some of the waterfowl habitats out in that landscape. And so we're talking about rice. We're talking about some intensively managed wetlands that I think there's a lot of privately owned lands and uh, um, high quality managed uh, wetlands on those on those duck clubs and on those private lands. And so you 
you interact with all of those players, right? You help deliver conservation projects on the state lands, on some of the federal land, as well as some of the private lands. Do I have that right? That's correct. And and so we're talking about some moist soil, sort of seasonally emergent wetlands, as well as uh, some uh, rice-associated wetlands. Do you do much work with, with the rice producers? Well, rice in the San Joaquin Valley has been perpetually declining. Uh, most of the rice production now in California is um, is in the Sac Valley, which is north of Sacramento. Um, there is a little bit of rice production around Merced National Wildlife Refuge and a little bit around uh, Mendota Wildlife Area. But due to um, high salt um, in the soils and just uh, the rising cost of water here in California, most rice production is um, now centered in the northern part of the valley. Okay, and do you do you get up and do any uh, up to the northern part of the valley to do any work there? Do we have some of our? I know we have a one of the things we probably should say here is we have a, our western regional office is located in. I think I'm going to get this uh, Rancho Cordova. Is that right, Matt? That's correct. Yes, up around Sacramento, right? That's right. Yeah. So we have a we have a team um, that sort of works in each of the eco regions of California. We have um, two biologists that work in the Bay Area and also the North Coast. We have uh, two biologists that sort of deliver projects in the Sacramento Valley. That's Craig Gardner and John Randlett. And then we also um, have a biologist, Aaron Will, that works in the Sacramento San Joaquin um, Delta. And then we also have um, Amelia Raquel that sort of works in Northeast California and in the Intermountain regions of Nevada. Okay, yeah, I've met uh, I've met Amelia a couple of times, and it's uh, always have to you know. Uh, reorganize my head with respect to where it is that that she she works uh where her primary responsibilities are uh we do anticipate getting her on to talk about some of the work that she does up there in that part of the state so uh amelia if you're listening fair warning to you (laughs) and uh and so matt for you for you there in the san joaquin valley are you are you sort of a, a one person team or what kind of additional staff do you have access to in that part of the valley in the San Joaquin Valley, um, it's myself and two engineers. We have Forrest Downing and Michael Bowman. Um, Forrest is based down in um, the Three Rivers area, which is outside of Vesalia, which is close to the the gateway to Sequoia National Park. And then uh, Forrest, I mean, um, Micah is based here in Fresno. So we sort of have both our guys sort of centrally located in the valley and they can sort of, you know, stretch all the way up to Modesto or head down to Bakersfield, depending on uh, where we're delivering our projects for that year and that time. Okay, I, I think we, uh, I think we'll probably at some point in the future have you back on to talk about some specific projects, maybe some of the uh, examples of projects that you're working on or have worked on. Maybe if we have some programs and partnerships that are highly influential out there and helping us to deliver habitat within the Central Valley. We'll get you back on at some point to talk about that. But I think we want to shift right now because uh, I know you well enough to know that you've, and I, I follow you on, on social media, and I, so I know that you've been able to get out and do your fair share of, of, uh, of hunting. You do that every year. And uh, a lot of folks you know, with, within our, our field do that. And of course, the Central Valley and is is one of one of 
our most important geographies. Continentally, is recognized as one of the most important wintering regions for uh, for waterfowl. Uh, some species are of or have a particular affinity to that area, pintails and cinnamon teal and things of that. And so you are a great person to talk to about uh, those elements, the type of waterfowl we're seeing in that area, because I know you've been able to get out. You've actually been able to get out into one of the other states. I think I saw a picture of a, a, a photo from a, a swan hunt, I believe it was. So tell us a little about uh, what you're seeing the, there in the Central Valley this year, and I don't know if you can characterize it relative to last year or, or historical sort of average, but what are you seeing in terms of bird numbers, in terms of habitat? I know a few weeks ago things were really warm out there, so, and I haven't, I'll be honest, I haven't really kept up much of, uh, haven't heard much about what uh, conditions and status of the migration is out there, but generally speaking, what are you seeing? Well, what we're seeing was is that we had a great spring and summer um, for breeding waterfowl here in California. So the mallard population responded to those favorable conditions, as well as local producing um, gadwall and cinnamon teal. And coupled with that, we had you know phenomenal carryover water um, from the winter. So we were able to irrigate a lot of our seasonal wetlands throughout the grassland ecoregion. And subsequently, a lot of food was produced here in the grasslands. And the table was set for a great opener, and we had some good weather. And overall, it was one of the best openers that a lot of guys had seen in years. Lots of uh, pintails, green-winged teal, and orange shellers, and local mallards were uh, harvested. A lot of guys were fired up. Um, the carryover from the opener went into about the first week. Guys were still shooting fair numbers of birds. And then the weather got pretty stale here. We got a huge high-pressure system. It sort of centered itself over the, the whole Western United States. And it just became quite warm. And the birds were able to find sanctuaries. We had a lot of clear nights. We had a long, full moon, bright nights. So the birds were really sort of conditioning themselves to just eat one time a day, mostly at night, sit in the sanctuaries during the day. And then subsequently, um, you know, some of those clubs were still able to, you know, you know, get some birds but the hunting really slowed down they call it slowvember here in california but this year the the high pressure system really uh took a long time and um to break and subsequently you know we didn't really get influxes of a lot of new birds so the birds that we did get here got a little stale and they just sort of figured out you know where they could be safe um that's all changed recently um the last couple weeks uh, we've had some pretty good um, storm systems come in. The high pressure system is obviously out. And last week we got over four inches here in Los Banos area. And subsequently, um, a lot of clubs right now are flooded too deeply and there's a lot of new fresh habitat. So the birds are sort of dispersing across the landscape because they've got a new, lot of new places to go. And a lot of clubs are not optimally flooded um, to those nice shallow depths that really favor, you know, the green winged teal and the pintail and such. So, it's sort of a state of flux right now. But one thing I was going to say was that, you know, the saving grace for the grasslands is during the slow time of November is that we have a lot of diving ducks that start filtering its way through from the Intermountain West and also coming down from Alaska and some of the coastal regions. So some of the duck clubs, you know, are, you know, they start getting their canvas backs to redheads and their ringnecks. So a lot of clubs that are hunting and having a lot of success, so that's what they're primarily focusing on is some of those bigger diving ducks and 
you know, it's a little different that, you know, you always consider diving ducks are, you know, big coastal lakes or coastal bays and then, you know, prey potholes. And here in the grasslands, you know, you can be sitting on a, you know, a, a flooded Timothy pond and shooting canvasbacks and ringnecks. It's, it's pretty cool. It's a unique little part of the world. Yeah, as you were talking, Matt, here I am, several questions are popping up. So uh, I'm going to go back through these things and uh, and touch on these. So help me out here. When you, you, you started out by talking about how things set up quite well for good food production in the grassland. And so I want to, I want to, I want to describe that a little bit for our listeners, some that may not be that familiar with it. When you're saying grasslands, I think you touched on this earlier, but uh, what's that referring to? The grasslands is a consortium of um, protected private wetlands and state wildlife areas and federal areas that primarily centers around the Los Banos um, area. Um, it's a large complex of um, wetlands and uplands that are highly um, managed for um, moist soil vegetation and also semi-permanent wetlands. Am I correct in in my memory that that grasslands name is sort of sort of used to refer to that particular region, and it's because historically that that San Joaquin Valley was was more of a grassland area. Am I right in that regard? That is that is correct. Now, the San Joaquin Valley was, you know, primarily, you know, had one major river system through it, which was the San Joaquin River and a few of its tributaries. So there was a riparian corridor that sort of followed those rivers and that, you know, some of the braided streams that went with it. But most of the wetland complex was um, a grassland, you know, seasonal wetland component. Yeah, like a really flat landscape and grassland area. And so now those things uh, – and, of course, they were seasonal wetlands when those rivers got out of their banks during the, the seasonally wet period. Uh, and and we, at some point we'll have you back on and we'll talk in more detail about how the hydrology has been changed in that landscape and what it's meant for the way we – we provide and manage for those habitats but but basically i wanted to unpack that a little bit when you said food produced in the grasslands and so you you referenced it were the food production you're talking about is that moist soil vegetation associated with those managed wetlands in that sort of grassland region yeah so uh, just to make sure we clarify that for some people that may not be familiar with that that central valley area what it looks like the type of vegetation communities that are common out there and really what the well, the, the dominant wetlands are that uh, waterfowl depend on. So that's that's point one there. Now the other question that popped in my mind as you were talking is the the opener. You said it was one of the best in I think recent memory for many people. And early on, you know, you, you talked about how the Central Valley. Another thing that that some folks may not be terribly aware of is that there are a large number of ducks that breed in the Central Valley of California in this in this landscape of that has a mosaic of grasslands and wetlands and certain parts of it. And so, uh, there you do have some breeding waterfowl as you referenced. Those birds are they? My guess is that they're particularly important for that early season. Is that? Uh, is that what you saw this year? And then that maybe that's why you had a really good opener because you were describing some good local production. We had great local production, which really helps, you know, when you're harvesting your, you know, your local mallards, your gadwalls and such and cinnamon teal. But we also had some earlier fronts that sort of set the stage for pushing some of those earlier green wing teal um, that are migrating through. And, you know, the bread and butter, you know, ducks for this, for the grasslands are pintails, shovelers and green wing teal. And we had a great influx of those green wing teal early this year. And then, you know, like I said, you know, it sort of got stale, it got really warm and 
the birds really didn't move around. We haven't had influx of birds, but you know, with this last, you know, bout of storms, you know, a lot of guys were going out and it wasn't, you know, particularly hot and heavy yet, but, um, guys were definitely having more teal in the, in the bag and definitely seeing more teal in the landscape. So I think as the water retracts off the landscape after this, after these sort of, you know, floods and such, we'll probably start seeing a few more birds pick up on a lot of these duck clubs. Yeah. And the, the birds that you're getting, those early birds that are migrating down, are those primarily coming from Alaska? Uh, are you, or, or are we getting some also from Alberta? What's the, what's the majority of where are those birds derived? It's, it's sort of a mix. I mean, yes, you know, we do get, definitely get a lot of birds that come from Alaska, the boreal forest, the prairies of Alaska, um, Alberta and Saskatchewan. But we also get a lot of birds from the Intermountain West areas of, you know, eastern Washington, eastern Oregon um, and parts of Nevada. Um, a lot of the, a lot of our yeah, there's, there's, there's lots of topics about, you know, the, all the birds that sort of contribute to the harvest of California. Yeah, we talk a lot about, and rightly so, about the prairie pothole region and the boreal forest being so important from a continental standpoint. But but there's also a lot of local production in those states out west that you mentioned, and the Intermountain West in Washington, Oregon, California, and then the same same as can be said for production in the Great Lakes states. And so we will have ample opportunity going forward to discuss some of those breeding populations as well but that's a good reference for for some of our folks there and uh and then also the divers as you were talking about the, the coming through from the intermountain west like are those birds being harvested in the same wetlands that you're harvesting the uh the the dabblers as you're you know typically we think of the divers of being associated with deeper waters as you described but you're, are you seeing those in those in the same emergent reasonably shallow wetlands it depends. I would say yes on some of these duck clubs. Yes, you're shooting some of these, these these divers in some of these shallower wetlands. But what's happening is some of these landowners have figured out that we've got divers and they have affinity for the swamp timothy. And swamp timothy to give everybody what swamp timothy looks like. It's a short statured grass. It looks very similar to Bermuda grass. It's got a lot of seeds. And the ringnecks and the canvasbacks and the redheads really love this this seed. And some of these landowners, what they're doing is that they'll flood the wetlands a little bit deeper um, during this uh, late October, November period to provide, uh, you know, these diving ducks a little bit of an opportunity. And then as early December comes, they start lowering those wetlands to get them a little bit more shallow because a lot of times those divers are starting to move on and move on to different wetland complexes throughout the state. And, um, you know, landowners are then focusing the wetland management more for, you know, greening teal, which were like razor thin water and mud flat conditions. So one other thing, whenever I was out there, there was a, uh, there was another plant. I'm trying to remember what it was and think here for a second. Watergrass. Am I getting that right? Watergrass is a name used for a plant out there that is it, is it millet? Is water is millet out there referred to as watergrass? That's correct. Watergrass is the same thing as barnyard grass or millet, yes. Okay. All right. So my memory didn't fail me there. I, I was rather perplexed whenever I was out there and they were talking about watergrass, and I think I'd seen that in some publications also. I'm like, what the heck is watergrass? And I'm like, oh, it's barnyard grass, millet. So That's right. When you are looking forward, weather forecast, I grew up in Mississippi. You grew up in Mississippi, and so we have sort of a frame of reference there about the type of weather systems that we anticipate or want to see in order to move birds and get us excited about that. So out west in California – 
what are the weather systems that you're really looking for this time of year? You've talked about how it's kind of stagnant or or sort of stalled a few weeks ago, but what are the weather systems that you really look for at this point? Well, if you're in the San Joaquin Valley, you're really looking for um, a big northern front that comes in off the Pacific Ocean, and you're looking for a little bit of wind, a little bit of rain, um, and particularly if you can follow those systems up with a little bit of a what I call a mid-level wet fog. You don't really want a, a ground fog, but you want a sort of a high fog that's really cold and really damp um, to follow those weather systems because that really gets those birds um, anxious, and then it also makes them sort of feeding more often. You know, once you know more than one time a day. Um, but if you're in the same, if you're in the Sacramento Valley, you don't want, uh, you don't want as much of a North wind all the time. You want a nice South wind. And the reason why is, is that a lot of these birds can move back and forth, um, back and forth from the San Joaquin Valley to the Delta, to the Sac Valley and back. So a lot of times when the San Joaquin Valley gets in with a big old storm system and South wind comes in we lose a lot of our birds. They go to the Delta, they go to the Sac Valley. But when that north wind turns around, um, a lot of times those birds sort of move back. So, um, you know, it's sort of, you know, yeah, it's a little different, you know. You know, growing up in Mississippi, you know, you're always excited about, you know, a front. It didn't matter if it was a south wind or a north wind. Um, You know, you could have, you know, you just had bird movement. But here, you know, you know, if you start having a south or east wind, it's pretty much death to, you know, a lot of bird um, numbers here in the in the San Joaquin Valley. Birds just disappear. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient, and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. What are you seeing for geese out there this year? Geese numbers are largest in the Sacramento Valley, um, mainly because there's larger wetland complexes and a lot more um, flooded egg. Lots of rice. And then as you transition south out of the Sacramento Valley, you transition into the Delta, which has lots of corn. So between, you know, corn and, you know, some of those green winter wheat fields and rice, you have, you know, lots and lots of uh, snow geese. Um, the geese really showed up early this year. Um, a lot of speckled bellies, white fronted geese came in early. Um, and now we're starting to see the snow geese starting to show up in the San Joaquin Valley in good numbers. Um, traditionally, you know, there was a lot, lot more geese here in the San Joaquin Valley, but as, you know, traditional ag, you know, a lot of the corn, a lot of the rice, you know, started to disappear off the landscape, the geese sort of shifted around too. What did those, what did those crop types, what did those crop types shift to? A lot of those crops, uh, shifted to either cotton or permanent crops like orchards, like nut crops, like almonds and pistachios. Oh yeah, that's right. Okay. That's that's what's causing some of the land use change there. Okay. And so the snow geese that you get out there are going to be primarily from Wrangell Island, right? That's one component of them, but yes. Yep. Okay. But you do get some from the Western Arctic as well. And I don't know if you chase geese very much, but if you've seen flocks of geese, have you paid any attention to the 
to the age ratio, the ratio of juveniles to to adults, uh, any idea what productivity was like out of those nesting colonies? We had Ray on a couple episodes previously, and he wasn't exactly sure what the what productivity was like out of Wrangell Island, some of the western colonies. If you have a do you have a handle on that? The few flocks I have seen, um, there's there is a pretty good composition of uh, young birds this year. Okay, and do you do you uh, spend did you spend your time chasing the geese, or mostly focusing on the ducks? Mostly on the ducks. When I go up to the Sac Valley and such, and some of other refuges and, you know, like Merced Refuge, which has a lot of geese out there. It's it's a lot of fun to go in there and, you know, scan those birds and sort of look at, you know, the ratios of, you know, young to adults, but also looking for neck collars. Sort of a fun activity to do during the, you know, the non-hunt days is when you're on the road, bring a pair of binoculars and look at the geese and sort of see if you got any neck collars. And you can always uh, have a report and sort of get a return um, for the banders. I was going to ask you if you uh, if you reported those, you know, reading the net collars, then you re- report. That. Who do you who do you report that to? Maybe people that don't don't know. Sure, you just uh, you can report uh, the bands to the bird banding lab. Okay, so the the collars, so the net collars, you report to the same place that you would report the bands. Is that right? That's correct. That's right. Okay. All right. There you go. And the be- the beautiful thing about these net collars are is that. Um, they are usually um, vary in colors and numeric schemes, so you don't have to have the full um, numeric code or the alpha code to um, submit it for a bird band because a lot of times they can sort of figure it out um, based on the information you provide. If it's a you know if it's a red band with white letters or such, and if you get a lot of the numbers, then they can go in there and they go through their database and they can really nail down what that bird is and where it was banded. You can report that collared bird even if it's not harvested is what you're saying. You go out there and look at it through a spotting scope or the binoculars. If you can get the color and you can get the alphanumeric code that's on that collar, you can report that to the to the bird banding lab. You don't have to harvest it in order to report that, right? That's correct. Uh, okay. So that's, that's one of the advantages that net collars provide over just the uh, aluminum or other metal uh, other types of metal leg bands. You really can't read those from a distance, but you can the neck collars. And so that's one of the advantages of those with, with geese. So a little cool piece of information there. Uh, man, I also, I, I want to, I want to touch on your story. I've, I've never hunted swans. Uh, I know that's become something that you try to do uh, occasionally. Tell me a little bit about that story. Uh, if, if you could, I'm not going to ask you exactly. Tell me where you went. You know, we're going to ask you to divulge your secret hunting spot or anything like that. But I have no idea how that swan, uh, sw- how the swan harvest works. Is it a quota system? Is it a permit system? How does that work? Um, there are several states out here in the West that permit um, harvest of swans. Nevada is one of them. And the state of Nevada allows you to go online and to purchase um swan tags you can you can purchase up to um, two swan tags a year and it's as easy as just going on line and purchasing those tags and then you know the big thing is to um to go harvest a swan is really to um figure out the time of year that they're really migrating through the state of nevada a lot of those birds um, stage in the great salt lake area of utah and this year was one of those unique years in which um, it was quite warm for a long period of time, and a lot of birds just stayed in Utah. 
and we're utilizing the, you know, the, the great, you know, their uh, river marshes and all that and hadn't really migrated. So it was one of those unique things in which we had the first strong storm front coming through, um, contacted a buddy of mine and I said, Hey, let's go to Nevada. Let's go try. And, you know, we went out to, um, the marsh and, you know, underneath the guise of a great friend of mine, uh, Chris Nikolai, who was in Nevada for a long, long time. He taught me a lot of tricks and trades on, uh, you know, you know, number of decoys, you know, some good places to go and just weather conditions that really make those swans, uh, um, more, um, attainable to put in the bag. And for me, you know, growing up in Mississippi, you know, we never had opportunities to, you know, see swans or even, you know, harvest swans. So for me, you know, when I moved out West, it was a really unique opportunity to, you know, to harvest something that was sort of unique, but the best thing is they're one of the best eating, um, waterfowl that I've had, um, you know, I sort of put them as number two. Number two behind what? You know, when you when you say number two, you have to tell me what number one is. Well, number one is not it's not a waterfowl, but it's it's sandhill crane. So that's my number one. But then I go swan, and then I, and then I go speckled belly, and then I go to a wood duck, and then yeah, of the birds that fly in the sky, the sandhill crane was going to be the was going to be the number one. I was going to agree with with you there, and so I thought you were just still within the waterfowl realm. But so no, we're all, we're all good there, um, uh, and. What species of swans are you uh, come through there, and did you did you harvest or tundra swans? Is that what you're dealing with? So yeah, most of the swans that are coming through Nevada are tundras, but they do have trumpeters, and they do have this um, quota system that they allow you to shoot swans in Nevada. When they say they let you shoot swans, if you do accidentally shoot a trumpeter. You're not going to get uh, penalized or, you know, a game warrant to come after you. But what they do is that when you reach, you know, you take your swan in, they measure the the bill length on it, the Coleman, and they take some other measurements on that bird. And therefore, they can quantitatively tell you that that was a tundra swan. And if they do, if they do harvest a trumpeter swan, then they just, it goes into the database. And I think when you get, um, you know, I think eight or nine birds, maybe 10 birds of trumpeters that's when they shut the season down statewide and now the the uh, the trumpeters are the larger of the two that's right and so the yeah so they so that time of year they have to rely on i would guess certainly for the juveniles they have to rely on those measurements now if you have an adult that time of year can you dif- differentiate between a tundra and a, and a trumpeter with a bird in hand you can okay yeah i figured you could i just I didn't have any you know firsthand experience uh, with that out there so um, and those birds, those, those swans, are they going to be breeders from the Intermountain West or are they migrating from other, uh, locations North? Most of these tundra swans are coming from Alaska and the Western Arctic. All right. But now the, the trumpeters, where are they, they're going to be from the Intermountain West? They could be from the Intermountain West, so they could be coming from Alaska or, the, you know, the Western Arctic too. Okay. Yeah, so I'm exposing a little bit of what I don't know about swans. Uh, they're a pretty cool bird. I'll have to, um... I have to brush up a little bit on my understanding of swan ecology. So uh, this is helpful. Appreciate that, Matt. No problem. Yeah, it's one of those unique things that, you know, the, you know, Salt Lake is a huge staging area for these birds. And then, you know, they move to the, you know, the wetlands of, you know, Nevada, central Nevada. And then they come over the crest of the Sierras and the, the largest wintering area in the whole western United States is in the central, in the San Joaquin Valley, I mean, the Sacramento Valley. 
And, you know, those birds then transition to, you know, mainly foraging in rice fields. So they go from, you know, native wetlands to, you know, you know, foraging in rice fields. So those birds are pretty, pretty adaptive in their, you know, foraging ecology. And obviously, you know, they're, they're an awesome bird to see on the, see on the landscape. Yeah. And I think I saw from your comments, uh, it was suggested that you know, maybe the, those birds have already migrated through or yeah, are starting to, or the migration may have proceeded out of Nevada at this point. Are they in California by now for the most part? They're all, the large portion of them are, are in, in California. You can still find them in Nevada, but um, typically what happens is the week of Thanksgiving, a lot of people have off and the hunting pressure starts, gets working on those birds. And that sort of is a push for those birds to keep on migrating and become less uh, susceptible to harvest. You can still get them after Thanksgiving, but you got to work a little harder. And then once they get to California, they're safe. They're safe. That's right. Okay. All right. Yeah. So they will boogie down to California and that's where they're headed. And uh, then folks just get to watch them and enjoy them, do their thing. So that'd be pretty cool. Uh, there, are, there are some neat birds. And so you were able to successfully harvest uh, a swan, right? You and a buddy of yours. That's right. Two swans. Cool. And so I'm sure you have big plans for those on the table. Uh, I know you and, and your wife, Molly, are really good at, uh, y'all have almost become like, well, actually, Molly is like a chef, professional chef. And so that's a pretty, uh, pretty good resource to have there, isn't it? It is. Uh, we like to bounce a lot of ideas back and forth. And, you know, I like to eat and I like to eat good food. And I like to try to find ways that they eat, you know, waterfowl in different ways and present it to, you know, my hunting friends, but also... Um, my non-hunting friends that, you know, there's this other great resource out there and, you know, you can do a lot of things with it simply. That's a big thing I like to do. I like to try to, you know, illustrate that you can eat, you know, a lot of this waterfowl simply and it can be really good eating. And, you know, for me, you know, swan, you know, I always try to have swan at least for, you know, Thanksgiving or for Christmas. And this year we had, uh, we had Thanksgiving swan to complement our you know, our deep fried turkey and you know, we've got a uh, swan that's going to be uh, consumed at Christmas time too. So it's been really awesome to have those kind of uh, great little table treats. Okay. All right. So I can't, I can't stop there. I got to ask you about the swan. I got to ask you about the swan recipe. What are you, what, what did you do with the swan for Thanksgiving and what is your plan for the swan at Christmas? Um, for Thanksgiving, what we did was these were all nice uh, fat adult birds. So I, I plucked the breast left skin on and flayed the the breast meat off the bone. I put it in a bowl of water for three days and took it out, a little bit of olive oil, and then with a dry rub recipe of um, rosemary, um, coarse salt, coarse pepper, a little cumin, and there's a local um, seasoning called Pappy's here, similar to Tony Chasseray's, but not with not the spice. Um, Put that dusting on both sides of the bird and then put in the refrigerator for about a week, uncovered and sort of dried aged. And the other thing that I did was I also scored the breast. So scoring the breast means to create like a diamond pattern on the skin. Kind of like people, some people would be familiar with a, doing a flounder like that. You know, a lot of people do a flounder like that. Yeah, exactly. So scoring that, what it does is it helps, you know, release the fat that's 
in the skin and sort of helps render it and sort of, you know, cooks off so you don't get a, you know, a greasy piece of meat, but sort of allows that skin to sort of crisp up. And then uh, on a grill pan with a little bit of butter, a little bit of uh, garlic, seared that, that swan to it was till it was medium rare and took it off, sliced it against the grain. And then I made an apple chutney, which was uh, sort of a spice concoction of some locally picked uh, apples, raisins, um, orange peels, a little bit of um, thyme and a little bit of rosemary. Cook that down till it's a nice, you know, thick little sauce and then uh, sort of serve uh you know, this perfectly seared uh, swan with a little bit of apple chutney. And, man, it was a great little appetizer. You know what I think we'll do is we'll just scrap the first part of this little episode, and then we'll just start over and just have you talk only about, about uh, waterfowl recipes. How's that sound? Hey, we can do that too. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I know you do some fantastic – you and Molly do some fantastic cooking. You share uh, you share some of that you know, uh, in, in some of your pictures and some of your social media, and I'm just – I just drool and my mouth watered, and I see all that, and it's just fantastic. And you, you taught me several recipes, the the old go to, and actually one of our previous guests referenced it. It's this, you know the olive oil and just the simple salt and pepper and rosemary, and then grill that thing medium rare. Now you actually took the the swan a little bit farther than that, but just as a base, it's hard to go wrong with that. And so, uh, so that was Thanksgiving, and you have you you have your plans laid out for Christmas yet? I think what I'm going to do is I am going to, you know, take that, that swan breast, you know, do a similar preparation, but we're going to um, make a cranberry chipotle sauce. I've done this now ever since I harvested my first swan in, back in 07. So it's just, you know, it's a real simple chipotle peppers, a little bit of fresh jalapenos, um, you know, some good cranberries. Reduce that down so it's a little thicker of a sauce, but it's got a nice, sweet um, spice to it. And then, you know, serve that swan with some wild rice, some candied uh, carrots, and some um, Brussels sprouts. I think that's what we're going to probably be doing with that, that, that meal. Okay. All right. When do we need to be out there? Well, I will be in South Carolina for visiting my folks. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. You'll be there. Well, that's closer. Yes, sir. That's even better. Well, so who do you do most of the cooking of the wild game, or does Molly, or do y'all just do y'all trade off? Uh, I do a lot of it, but there are definitely some preparations that uh, she likes to partake in. We uh, have a recipe that we uh, sort of um, worked with a local Chinese restaurant in Sacramento called Simon's. They make these great lettuce cups, which is, you know, sauteed duck, plum sauce, water chestnuts, uh, fresh onions, a little bit of jalapenos, and put it in a, a little bit of a iceberg lettuce cup, and it's got a little bit of a sauce. So that's one of Molly's favorite little recipes to do. But, you know, when it comes to cooking the waterfowl and the ducks and the geese and whatever, you know, that's one of my things I like to just take over and do my part. That's more your domain. Yeah. You've kind of made that more your domain. Mm-hmm. And that's fair. That's fair. Well, I've seen some of the pictures that y'all that y'all that y'all put out, some of the dishes y'all prepare, and it's just fantastic. And I wish we were closer and we could partake of that. But uh but yeah, I mean Whenever we started this, I knew we were going to talk about waterfowl, and you would probably talk a little bit about some of your plans with the with the duck, but and and the waterfowl you harvest. But yeah, I had no idea we'd spend about ten or fifteen minutes talking about waterfowl recipes. But that was cool. Appreciate that. That was a nice little detour. Well, uh, keep your eyes out on social media because I am going to be doing some swan neck tacos too. All right. Okay. <laughs> just rub it in. Just rub, just rub it in, Matt. Okay. Uh, 
I think that'll wrap it up for us here. This uh, this has been fantastic. We appreciate you sharing some insights on what you do, kind of what you're seeing with respect to waterfowl conditions and habitat conditions out there right now, and even a little story about a, a, a about your about the swan hunting, and then of course the fantastic uh, recipes that you provided. It's way more than I ever thought we would uh, we would cover today, Matt. But it's it's it tur- turned out great. So thanks for your time, man. No problem. Thank you, Mike. And come on and visit sometime. We will. And we'll have you back on the show sometime in the future. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. A special thanks to our special guest on today's episode, Matt Kaminsky, regional biologist out in the Central Valley of California. He shared with us a great deal of information on waterfowl, waterfowl habitat, and then even waterfowl recipes. That's a fantastic combination. Thanks, Matt. We also thank our producer, Clay Baird. We'll start calling him the Electron Warrior for all of his editing on these podcasts. He does a great job getting these uh, these out to you, our listeners, and our listeners. We appreciate you and sharing your time with us and listening to these podcasts. We appreciate your comments. We're getting those. We're we're seeing those, and and, uh, thanks for those. Join us on some future episodes, and we most importantly appreciate and thank you for your commitment to wetlands, waterfowl conservation, and the passion you put into that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.